Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the, this divine relationship that has existed for all eternity, that dreamed up creation because you just loved so much you had to share yourself, this companionship and relationship and celebration and collaboration and in love and delight, you couldn't help yourself, Father, Son, and Spirit, by sharing yourselves. And so we are recipients of this divine love. We have been brought in and included into this divine love, into this divine hug and dance. And so we say yes and amen, Jesus, to how you've included us, you've brought us in, and this is not in spite of the Father's heart, this is because of the Father's heart. That we've been given this spirit of adoption through you and your life and your presence, Holy Spirit. That you're calling us home over and over again. That the world is telling us who we are in so many different ways, but you are our true north star. You are our, our, our compass. You're our guide. So come and remind us. Come and revive us. Reorient things within, deep within us, in our souls, in our minds, in our hearts that need to be reoriented and recalibrated according to your resurrection, Jesus. We've been living in light of old creation. Would you come and shake us up and invite us into this new way of living, this new way, the future way that is coming, this resurrection? Would you help us to live into it, to speak into it, to see it? Thank you, Jesus, for resurrection. Thank you, Jesus, for your life that you share with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week, as Randy said, was, it felt like a party to me. It was a good time. I'm really glad we chose waiting till Easter Sunday to come back in person together because, man, did it feel like doing Easter right. It felt like for the first time in several years, Easter wasn't just this day when our, our chairs get more full than normal and it feels really good, but then you move on. It actually felt like something. It felt like we came ready to worship the risen Jesus. It felt like we came ready to be the church together because it's been so long since we felt that in person together. felt so good. I talked to many of you, whether you're couples or families, and how badly you felt like your kids needed that or how bad you guys needed that. You needed more people. Or I've talked to many of you single folks who were like, I just went through the hardest year of my life, feeling alone and isolated. And for some of us, for hopefully for many of us, we were reminded of how desperately we need the church. It was a fun time. And... What we find, like Randy Schmore, the elder Randy, was talking about in the beginning of our service, is that too often, things like Easter are a one-and-done type situation. We have fun with Easter. It's great. It's a challenge for pastors because we've got to preach through the same text every single year and try to kind of come up with something original. But it's still really fun, and we get all excited about it, and it's really, literally, the, the, the climactic moment in human history, the, most, the pivotal moment in scriptures and in all of the cosmos is the resurrection, and we have this one Sunday to, to, to center ourselves around it. 
started to think about it, and we, we, we do it well, and we say, He is risen. He is risen indeed. And then we say, what's for lunch? Is it cheesy potatoes with a ham or mashed potatoes this year? I'm not sure. And then we move on, and I was ready to dive into the book of Daniel, dive back in to the book of Daniel and talk about exiles and empires, but our staff persuaded me, we need another week on Easter. Let's give Daniel a little break, a little rest. And so that's what we're going to do. It didn't have to twist my arm too hard to, to, to think about the resurrection. And what we're going to find, friends, is that the resurrection is much more than just kind of this little bonus story in the Bible. Do you think that's sometimes how we treat things like Christmas, the Christmas narrative, or, or Easter? Is we treat it as this little, little bonus, this little add-on, this little fun thing that we get to add on to the rest of it, but then we proceed with life as normal. Do you know what I'm talking about? If there's any old school engineers in the house, before we had things like great computer programs like AutoCAD and everything, you'll remember the transparent paper that you would make some blueprints on. And then you'd actually enhance that. You'd, you'd add on to that by, with this transparent paper and you'd make your plans and you'd draft them and you'd lay them, overlay them over the top so you kind of collaborate on what's, what's been done already, if you know what I'm talking about. And I think we treat Easter like that. We take the old way of doing things and the old creation the old blueprints, and we just color a picture of this empty tomb with the stone rolled away, and we put it transparently right on top of the old stuff and think that's going to work. And what we find, friends, is that God in the resurrection is throwing those old blueprints out. The old creation now is gone, and it's something completely new and redeemed and renewed. There's something absolutely original going on here that you can't just plop an empty tomb over the old creation. Actually, it's new creation exploding wherever you find it, wherever you're looking, if you're looking for it. And all we're going to do this morning is we're just going to dive into the resurrection narrative because that's all you've got to do to see that everything now is different. But too often we even read these resurrection narratives and we read this, the scriptures with this old creation mindset, these, the lenses of the old creation where our eyes are too darkened and used to and habitually just they're conditioned to the darkness of the old creation that we can't see the beauty and brightness of the new creation right when it's sitting right before us. For some of us, maybe we're old enough to have teenage kids. And you know the sleep patterns of teenage kids. Maybe some of us are young, en young enough to not be too far out of our teens and you know what that feels like. For being a parent, I've, I've, my youngest is nine. I've got, me and my wife have four. Our youngest is nine. Our, our, our oldest is just about to turn 14. And sleep habits change during the course of childhood. In those first like six years of, of, of childhood of having kids, bedtime, I see a few of you new parents. Just get ready for bedtime. Dinner time and bedtime, you are going to like come to Jesus numerous times per day. Because bedtime is like hostage negotiation. And I'm not joking. I mean, you, 
as a parent, will be tempted to give away every treat and luxury to your kids if they just close the door and stay in their bedroom at night. You and your mom need some time. Get out of my face. And it's just you do everything you can to keep them in their bedroom. And when they're little, you do everything you can to keep them in their bedroom at night, but also early in the morning, as soon as that sun comes up, they're up. And usually they're right at your bedside. What are we going to do today, Daddy? What's going on today, Daddy? Shut up! I don't say that. I I don't holler just what I feel like. But all of a sudden things start changing. And when you couldn't beg and plead your kids to stay in bed long enough, all of a sudden you can't beg and plead for your kids to get out of bed early enough. And all of a sudden it's noon and you think your kids might be dead as they turn to teenagers. And then they get out of the room. Usually it's boys too, let's be honest. But they'll come out of the room at about 12.30, 12.45 in the day and they're like, it's like they are, they're totally blind because they were in their cave and they can't see anything and they're just like, oh my gosh. That's kind of how we get when we, when we try to engage with the resurrection and these stories of new creation. We're seeing darkly and dimly through the lenses of the old creation. We can't even see the beauty and the profound nature and the ramifications of the resurrection because we're so used to seeing things in the old, decaying, dying sort of way. And so our job is to ask, Holy Spirit, would you give us the eyes of new creation to be able to see and enlighten these stories because everything changes because of the resurrection, friends. And if that isn't your story, if Easter is just a day to eat ham and dress up and go to church, you're missing out. I'm not even going to kind of dangle you over hell with a rotten stick and try to shame you into to seeing the, the beauty and the blessing of the resurrection. I'm just saying you're missing out. Living in light of the resurrection, friends, is truly the only way to live. So we're just going to get a glimpse. We're going to go through three little little facets of the resurrection that I think three things that changed with the resurrection. Three new ways of discovering reality in light of the resurrection. So the first one, we're going to actually rewind past the resurrection into the crucifixion. And we're going to get to see the story of some women who follow Jesus. See, one one of the things that the resurrection absolutely changed is the reality for women in God's creation. There's a drastic difference. Now, if we're going to be honest, if we're going to be honest, women are, I'm not even going to say basically, women are marginalized in our scriptures. Particularly the Hebrew scriptures, women are a marginalized people group. You don't see them. You You don't hear from them. As a matter of fact, did you realize, did you know, this is just fact, of the named human beings, of the named people in the Hebrew Scriptures, in the Old Testament, what we consider and speak to as the Word of God, in the Old Testament, less than 10% of the named people are women. Now I say that, and I'll bet for most of us men, it just goes in one ear and out the other. 
But I don't think as men we fully understand and appreciate the weight of what it's like to read the Scriptures as a woman. To read this narrative that, you, that, that you've heard is for you, but you don't find much of yourself in it. Where less than 10% of the named people are women in it. And where, where so many women in this, these stories are marginalized and swept under the rug and they're just daughters or wives who are made for childbearing and being wives and keeping the house. And the reason is, is not because God is a misogynistic, sexist deity. The reason is, is because the Bible is a product of its time. The Bible was written thousands of years ago in the ancient Near East, an extremely patriarchal world, an extremely misogynistic, sexist world where women were marginalized and oppressed more than you and I could ever, ever imagine. I'm just being honest. I'm, I'm, I'm not interested in sugarcoating things and sugarcoating the scriptures because most, you guys are too smart for that. We could make some fantasy land where women are this huge part of the Bible. It's just not true. But again, it's because the Bible is a product of its time, friends. If you look at any book written thousands of years ago in the ancient Near East, you're going to see the same exact thing because the Bible was written in a time where women were marginalized and, and oppressed and forgotten about and swept under the rug. And that's just the, the way it is. I when I first had a dream of starting, planting a church in Milwaukee, I worked at a restaurant just blocks from here, less than a mile from here. And I remember engaging with friends who were ladies, who were in their early 20s, who were unchurched, but they knew just enough of the Bible and they knew just enough of the church to know the place of women in the church and the place of women in the Bible. And they said, I could never be part of a faith community that marginalizes women. I could never follow a God that marginalizes women. And I want to be very clear that it is not our God who marginalizes women. It's just that our scriptures are a product of their, of their time. But what we find, friends, is that things begin changing in the resurrection. The story starts flipping on its head if you're paying attention, if you're looking for it. These very familiar stories paint a different kind of picture than we're used to than in the Old Testament. Let's start back in, the, in, in Luke 23. This is in the crucifixion narrative. As Jesus is walking, journeying, we're going to journey with Jesus from the, the road to, the, to Calvary all the way into the, the empty tomb. And it says in Luke 23, starting in verse 26, as the soldiers led Jesus away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. And a large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Now, I just want you to pay attention to this thread that's being woven through all these scriptures that I'm going to read. This is John 19, jumping forward to John's account of the crucifixion. Near the cross of, of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. A huge group of, a big group of women. When, when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took him into his home. Now let's go back to Luke 23. That's, then the centurion, seeing what had happened, 
praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. And when all the people who had gathered to witness the sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all who knew him, including the woman who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. That's at the crucifixion of Jesus. Now we come to the burial of Jesus where Joseph of Arimathea is giving away his tomb and burying Jesus because they had to do it before the Sabbath. In Luke 23, the woman who had come with Jesus from Galilee and were there right under the cross, they followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid into it, laid in it. They were making sure everything was done right for their master and savior. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandments. And here we go with the resurrection narrative in Luke 24. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, who was it? The woman took the spices that were, they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about what was going on, suddenly two angels, two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning, stood beside them. In their fright, the woman bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead. Praise Jesus. He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he, was to- how he told you, because you're just his followers, not just the men, you women. Remember how he told you while he was with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners to be crucified and on the third day raised again. Then they remembered his words. And they, when they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others, the men who were hiding in the room with the doors locked. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But the apostles did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up, ran to the tomb, bent over, saw the strips of linen lying there, and went away wondering to himself what had happened. Now, I just gave you these snapshots, but if you'd read through, what you'd find is I, is, that's just there in plain sight, hidden, is that this narrative of the women being following Jesus, wailing and mourning as, as he's walking to Calvary. In this story that's recounted in every of the Gospels of these women standing there, not abandoning Jesus in his moment of torture and execution. The, these women who are dedicated to Jesus and they're not going to leave Jesus even when he's dead and gone. They're going to make sure that he's buried in the proper way, following with this person of power in Joseph of Arimathea. And then it's the women who show up at the tomb when they're going to honor their Jesus. What you'll find is that it's just the women, not the men. find it very ironic, friends, that this most climactic story in all of the scriptures, the story where everything for all of the cosmos changes, where all of the redemption and renewal that you've ever dreamed about in your life for every human being, the, the, the moments that this is happening, it's not the men who are the bystanders and the witnesses and the brave ones who are standing with Jesus in his moment of need, it's the women. It's these ladies who show us actually, who give us this truest, biggest picture of what it looks like to give my full self to Christ without respect of what my well-being is, without respect of what my, my, 
my notoriety and my, my reputation is. See, the men were gone because they realized that if they were identified with Jesus as he hung there on the cross as a criminal, that they would probably have, they would have to fear for their own lives and their reputations were at stake. They realized that their very futures were at stake. And so they did the sensible thing and ran for the hills, locked the doors, were nowhere to be found. But see, it's these women who without regard for their own well-being, who were fearless, with full of reckless abandon because this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. And I believe that in these stories, friends, we're being showed a new day that these women who were once in the Hebrew Scriptures swept under the rug, only 10%, less than 10% of the human beings spoken of and named in the Hebrew Scriptures were women. Now they take front and center as everything is being renewed and redeemed. And God is saying, welcome to the new creation. Welcome to the new creation. No longer will this will half of my sons and will half of my, my my beloved children be marginalized and oppressed and forgotten. Now they take center stage. And what's really interesting to me is that all of these crucifixion narratives, these resurrection narratives, the narrative of the burial of Jesus, they most likely came from women because the men weren't there. They were literally just turned into journalists who had to go to the women, who had the guts to be there, who had the guts to stand with Jesus in his death and crucifixion, who had the guts to be there at his burial, who had the guts to go there and find an empty tomb, you won't find any stories of the men showing up. It was the men who had to ask the ladies. And friends, this is not an aberration. This is not an anomaly. This is simply the way of the new creation. This is not... As some preachers want to say, this is not because of brokenness that women are leading men and showing up the men. This is because of the Imago Dei. This is God's original intent and design, and God is showing in my new creation there will be no more marginalization of women. There will be no more oppression of women. There will be no hidden women in the background. They will be front and center. It will be men and women, hand in hand, arm in arm, leading the kingdom of God the the way forward in the kingdom of God together. And sometimes it's going to be the women leading the men. Maybe even oftentimes. This is just the way of new creation, and it's about time we get used to it, friends. See, because what we find right now is that for 2,000 years, we found patriarchal men fighting against this new way of the new creation where men and women lead together. For too long, the church has opposed and oppressed women and resisted this way of new creation. But I'm telling you, there is this movement that has begun that is not slowing down called equality in this imago day of leading the church. Just this morning, as I was reading my notes, so I could tell you this sermon, I turn on my computer and I see Beth Moore, this leader, this woman in the Baptist church who's walked away from the Southern Baptist Convention and who now, this morning, just yesterday, apologized for agreeing with complementarian leadership that's saying that it doesn't, it doesn't reflect the fullness of the Godhead and the fullness of the Scriptures. There is something happening in the church and it is a new way and a new day, not just for women in the church, but for men in the church, for us all to collaborate together. This is what it means to live in light of the resurrection, friends. You don't have to be scared of it. You don't have to 
be, be, feel pressurized because of it. You don't have to feel like you're betraying the Scriptures. You're actually being true to the Scriptures when we walk in light of the Imago Dei. And just, that just means that men and women were created in the image of God to lead, into, in, in, to lead together into the new creation. This is just one of the ramifications of the, of the new creation. But friends, it's about time we get on board. That's the first one. Second little signpost, as N.T. Wright would say, of the new creation. We're going to engage with the rest of our time in the, which isn't a lot, but we're going to engage in the story of the road to Emmaus. This is in Luke 24. We find in Luke, I love the different accounts of the, of the story of the crucifixion and resurrection and the, the aftermath of the resurrection. We get these different takes and these different accounts. Some people might, it's not contradictory, it's just different angles, different conversations, different snapshots. It's beautiful. After Jesus is risen, the women discover this. The angel said, why do you look for the living among the dead? The ladies come back and tell the disciples, Jesus is not dead. His body isn't there. They discover this. Peter goes and he wonders by himself what's happening. And all of a sudden, Luke takes us to the road to Emmaus. And it says in verse 13, now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. Now, before we go forward, most of us, when we read the story, we think of two disciples and we think of two men. And I'm not just saying this to, to have some, some, some feminist agenda, some liberal agenda, but what we're going to find is that Cleopas is the one who's named here, the, one, the, the, the follower of Jesus, the disciple who's named. His name is Cleopas. We're going to find that in verse 18. And then it doesn't name the other one. But what many scholars think is the other disciple here, the other follower of Jesus, is actually Cleopas' wife, that this is a husband and wife walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Because if you were paying attention, in John 19, when I read the account of the crucifixion, it listed the woman there, and it's one of the women there was Mary, the wife of Clopas. Now, what was very commonplace in the ancient Near Eastern writing is that Clopas and Cleopas are two different versions of the same name, and two different writers would have a different version of the, the name of the same name of the same person. Are you with me? So, Almost all biblical scholars think Clopas of John 19 is the same person of the Cleopas of Luke 24 in the road to Emmaus. Are you with me still? And they think if that's the same person, it's very likely that because Mary, his wife, was there at the cross, at the foot of the cross as Jesus was dying, it's more than likely that this is Cleopas and Mary because they were both there. They're walking home processing as husband and wife. It's just a fun little story for us we're married people to see this is, this is just normal. This is commonplace. So they were walking in verse 14 with each other, talking about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked with them. But they were kept from recognizing them. And so Jesus asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still. Can you imagine they're walking? What are you discussing? They're like, who the heck is this guy? Um... One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? In other words, bro, do you have your head buried in the sand? Have you not heard about this guy Jesus of Nazareth that the whole city is buzzing about? They just murdered him. What things, Jesus asked. 
Well, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him down over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us what they had seen in a vision, visions of angels, who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see Jesus. And here we go. And he said to them, Jesus said to them, how foolish you are. How foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And then it says this, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets. In other words, starting with Genesis, going all the way through the Hebrew scriptures, every single bit, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And here's this next little signpost of the resurrection, this next thing that the resurrection changes for us, and that is the way we engage with the Bible. Now, this seems small, but hang with me, friends, because I think it's a really, really big deal. The Bible, we were just being honest about women in the Bible. Let's be honest. Let's be honest some more about the Bible. I love the Bible. I'm a Bible guy. I can't get enough of it. But let's just be honest. The Bible is not an easy book to engage with, is it? We just take off our churchy sensibilities where we got to pretend, Right? The Bible is a complex book. As a matter of fact, it's not even a book. It's a library of 66 books written over the course of several thousand years, written in different time-space moments, written to different people. Of course it's going to be a complex book that's difficult to engage with if we're perfectly honest. People spend their lives learning about history, learning about the, the cultural context that the Bible is written in because it's really hard to understand it if we don't understand all these things. The Bible can be difficult. As a matter of fact, if we're honest, the Bible sometimes is a reason that people walk away from the church altogether. It's not easy. And people, both biblical scholars and fake wannabe biblical scholars, have made loads of money writing book after book after book after book, volumes of books on how to read the Bible. Because it's not easy. And we read these books. We've, I've, got a, I've got a bookshelf full of them. I can lend them to you sometime. But there's so many people who are trying to get us to, to, to understand the Bible, the best way to exegete the Bible, what, what learning hermeneutics and how to interpret the Bible, how to filter certain things. Have, has anybody else given themselves to this? How many Bible studies have you been a part of? And here, Jesus, we, we look at this narrative on the road to Emmaus and we just take this as kind of Cleopas and maybe his wife or whoever the disciple was, like, ah, Jesus is giving it to him. Like, they're kind of dopey. They're really kind of dim-witted. How foolish you are. And Jesus is going to school them and give them a lesson on how to read the Bible, right? What we find if we're really opening our eyes, friends, is that Jesus, 2,000 years ago, to us right here today, is giving us a lesson on how to engage with the Scriptures. And here it is. Wherever and whenever you find yourself engaging with the Scriptures, look for Jesus. 
That's it. That's it. See, Jesus is, is, he has to reteach his disciples on how to read the scriptures because they don't get it. They read it as this autonomous kind of authoritative, not sure how to handle a book that was written and we're trying to piece it together. And Jesus is saying, you don't get it that every single thing in here is pointing to me. Everything. So anytime you read the scriptures, you engage in the scriptures, whether it's the Hebrew scriptures in the Old Testament or the New Testament canon, look for Jesus because he's there. And I think this is a word that Jesus gave to his disciples on the Emmaus Road 2,000 and some years ago, and I think it's a word that he could give to the American church in 2021. See, because we love the Bible. We love learning about the Bible. We have our Bible studies. We got our small groups. There are just, how many Bible studies have you been, I'm, been in? I mean, countless. And Jesus stood before the people like us who have given themselves to the Bible, who have studied the scriptures, who think they're really smart and they can quote scriptures. Jesus stood before the religious leaders leaders of his day, and he was like, you guys have given yourself to the scriptures. You've given your lives to the studying in the, in the understanding and the pursuit of knowledge of the scriptures. As a matter of fact, you put them on your forehead. You memorize them. You, you, you love to, to seem smart in the ways of the scriptures, but here's the deal. All of the scriptures are pointing to me, and you don't even recognize me when I'm right in front of you. Friends, far be it from us to, to ignore the resurrected, risen Jesus who said, I'm giving you a new, new hermeneutic. Here's, here's the hermeneutic. Here's the, the method of interpreting the scriptures. Here's the filter. Anytime you come to the scriptures, look for Jesus. And I'm telling you, it's going to transform the way you engage with the scriptures. If something seems funky or wonky and you don't get it, it doesn't jive, look at it in light of the risen, resurrected Savior named Jesus. Jesus is saying, I'm the filter. Everything in it, not just these messianic prophecies that make you feel good, every single thing from the beginning with the books of Moses all the way through the prophets. In other words, the whole dang thing is there to point to Jesus. That's why the scriptures are here. The whole point of the scriptures is to tell us about Jesus. So the resurrection changes women's role within the kingdom, within the new creation, and gives women a whole new place and beauty and glory within the new creation. The resurrection changes the way we see the scriptures and the way we engage with the scriptures, the way we apply the scriptures, what we're, how we're engaging with the scriptures. And then we see, we continue on in the story and we finish here of there's something else that happens with the resurrection, with the resurrected Jesus when we're addressed by the risen Jesus. After Jesus is done explaining the scriptures to them, opening their eyes, giving them this new hermeneutic, it says in verse 28 that as they approached the village to which they were going, they're coming up to Emmaus, their, their destination, Jesus continued on as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, stay with us, won't you? For it is nearly evening, the day is almost over, so he went in with them and stayed with them. And listen to this, when he was at the table with them, he took bread gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. 
and he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? I want to just think about this part in verse 30 30 where it says, he was at the table with them. Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. And their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and they disappeared. Now, does this remind you of any other little story in the scriptures? comes to your mind. Now, on the surface for me, it's Luke 22 or 21, the, the, yeah, Luke 22, the, the Lord's Supper. Jesus takes bread, breaks it gives, to it, gives it to his disciples. But see, this is a story, a mirror story, a parallel story that goes way back. Think of the first meal in the Bible. first meal in the Bible took place in Genesis 3, a story where Adam and Eve are deceived by the enemy. And the enemy says, did God really tell you you can't eat from that tree? Surely you can eat from that tree. You're going to abound in knowledge. And so Eve grabs the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and she tastes it, and it's good. And then she grabs some more and gives it to her husband, Adam, and he tastes it, and it's good. And what happened after they ate that first meal in the Bible? Their eyes are opened. Do you remember? Their eyes are opened, and everything changed. This first meal, their eyes are opened, and all of a sudden, shame and guilt come into the story of God's good creation. Their eyes are open, and all of a sudden, enmity between men and women are ushered into the story in God's good creation. Their eyes are opened, and all of a sudden, eventually, their family tree will have murder in it because of sin and brokenness. They eat this first meal, and their eyes are opened, and brokenness and tragedy and heartache and murder and violence become part of the human story, friends. And all of a sudden now we have this resurrected, risen Jesus. He says, I'm going to give you a new meal. I'm going to give you something to eat, and your eyes are going to be opened again. But it's not to the old creation. It's not to death. It's not to decay. It's not to the curse. I'm going to give you this new meal, and your eyes are going to be opened because they're going to be the eyes of the new creation where now you see everything differently. Now nothing is the same if you're looking for the resurrection. They took part in this meal. And we see this beautiful marriage here in Luke 24 in the story of the road to Emmaus, this marriage of the word and the sacraments. Jesus opening the scriptures for them, giving them this new new hermeneutic, a new way of understanding the word of God that came to life where Jesus is in and behind every single point in the scriptures. And then he gives them this meal that opens their eyes to be able to see the beauty and the ramifications of the resurrection wherever they look. And friends, we get the privilege, 2,000 and some years later, 
of doing the exact same thing. We've just been opening the Word of God together, letting Jesus come to the forefront of the pages. And now we get this sacrament where Jesus gives us this meal and we say, Lord, would you open our eyes just like you did for Cleopas and his wife? So if you don't have one of these, friends, I'm going to encourage you. There's tables on each side. If you don't have the communion elements, go grab it right now. It's also in the back. And we're going to step back in time and let Jesus give us this new meal of the resurrection that opens our eyes to the beauty in the, the new cre- of the new creation wherever we find it. So this is a COVID-friendly little thing, but it's a little awkward. So peel back that first bit of film where we can access the host, the bread. I'm going to give you a second because it's noisy and distracting. And while you do that, I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 11 where the Apostle Paul gets it so good. said, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do, the re- do this in remembrance of me. And I'm going to go back now to Luke 24 and read this. It said, when Jesus was at the table with them, he took bread, he gave thanks and broke it, and he began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened. So friends, let's eat this bread and say, Jesus, would you open my eyes? Go ahead and open the cup. Paul said, in the same way after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant. Everything's new. It's the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For Paul said, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You proclaim that new creation has taken over. And so friends, would you say this with me? We're going to toast together with this cup. Would you say with me to the new creation? To the new creation. Let's let's stand and worship one more time together.